Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. According to some sources, a majority of all marriages in the world are arranged. However, despite how common this practice is, relatively little research has been conducted on the subject. And there are a lot of myths and misconceptions out there regarding what arranged marriages actually look like and how they work. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. I am joined by Dr. Sharon Flicker, a clinical psychologist who researches intimate relationships. She is an assistant professor of psychology at California State University, Sacramento. This is going to be a fascinating and informative conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. The Kinsey Institute at Indiana University has been investigating issues of sex, gender, and relationships for 75 years. To commemorate the Institute's 75th anniversary, they will be hosting events all throughout the year, including art exhibitions, research lectures, a book club, dance performances, and much more. Visit their website at kinseyinstitute.org or follow them on social media for the latest details. You can follow them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Kinsey Institute. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? Check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more, as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Hi, Sharon, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Now, marriage is something that seems to be fairly universal across cultures, but the societal function of marriage is something that has differed dramatically across time and across culture. So as a starting point, can you just talk to us a little bit about how the purpose of marriage differs across cultures and how that might shape the way that marriage is going to be approached? Sure, absolutely. You know, I think even within the US, we've experienced a lot of change just over the last few decades in terms of what the purpose of marriage is. I think increasingly marriage is viewed as a route to personal fulfillment, you know, that this this makes me a better person or helps me be the best I can be and, and meets my needs, whatever those needs may be. In a lot of other cultures, I think marriage is about joining two families. It's not really about just the individuals. It's about merging of two families and making a really stable situation, I guess, for the tasks of living, including reproduction. And I think this is something that is really important to recognize, you know, just how much, even within our own culture, marriage has shifted in such a short period of time. And I think it's actually part of the reason why a lot of us struggle with marriage today. It's because increasingly we're putting more and more expectations onto it that weren't there before. Or I guess I shouldn't say it's necessarily more expectations. It's different kinds of expectations that maybe are a bit harder to meet when you're talking about something like, say, self-actualization. So yes, recognizing that variability across time and culture in terms of how we approach marriage is super important for understanding the ways that people are going to approach it. So when we're talking about arranged marriage, what does that term actually mean? 
I think there's this common assumption that all arranged marriages look the same. And it's just parents picking a spouse for their child without any input from that child. And so a lot of people sort of have this idea that an arranged marriage refers to having a spouse that is essentially forced on you and that you have no agency in it. But the reality is that arranged marriage can take a lot of different forms. So can you tell us a little bit about that? What do arranged marriages actually look like? Yeah, sure. I'll just take a step back and and kind of talk about how what my personal experience is around this. I am not from a culture that practices arranged marriage, but I did spend several years living and teaching in Bangladesh. And so was had many friends and students who experienced arranged marriage as well as couple initiated marriages and saw really huge diversity in what that looked like. So one of my colleagues who got married, her parents said, would you like to meet the person before you get married? And she just said, no, I trust you hundred percent. Whoever you, you pick for me would be great. And then, you know, so she met her partner on her wedding day. And then I had other people who's, you know, kind of had veto power. Their parents would pick someone out that they thought was acceptable for them and they would meet them. And if maybe date for a little while and see whether that person was who they who they wanted to spend the rest of their life with. So there's really wide variability in, in what that means. I would also say that there's also kind of a middle ground where people pick their partner and then ask their parents to arrange that marriage for them. And so technically it would be an arranged marriage, but it is actually someone that they chose themselves that their parents said, okay, this meets our standards. We'll do that. I appreciate you sharing all of that. It tells us that I think a lot of the popular ideas out there about arranged marriage are just wrong. You know, it it is not just one thing. It can take a lot of different forms. And in a lot of cases, there is a lot of individual influence in terms of partner choice. Now, you've conducted research on arranged marriages, and one of the things that prompted your most recent study on this is that previous studies comparing what we're calling couple-initiated marriages versus arranged marriages have produced conflicting findings in terms of which relationship style is linked to greater marital quality. So what did the earlier studies in this area find? Yeah, so there were there is a bunch of different studies and they really some of them support that arranged marriage had higher marital quality. Some of them supported that couple initiated marriages which are often called love marriages in a lot of these cultures and had higher marital quality. Some found no differences and so it was really, you know, runs the gamut across the board in terms of the findings there there was no good clear pattern. I think that term love marriage in and of itself shows a bit of bias in terms of how we're describing these relationships because there's sort of this presumption that, you know, love is necessarily a part of a couple-initiated marriage but not part of an arranged marriage. So it just goes back to how I think we have these cultural lenses on when we're looking at different types of relationships. And I think people often tend to uphold whatever the predominant style is that's in their culture and perceive that as superior necessarily in some way. And that comes out sometimes in the language they use to describe these relationships. So what do you think accounts for the discrepant findings, right? So you said that they're kind of all over the board. Some studies find that the couple-initiated marriages are happier. Others find that arranged marriages are happier. So why are we seeing that? What, what's accounting for that difference? I think there's probably lots of factors that are accounting for that difference, including, you know, how are we assessing what the outcomes are? But one of the main things that I focused on was this real difference in how arranged marriage is practiced 
across cultures, even within culture. And so when you're not really measuring a, a single concept, <laughs> a single construct, you can get really divergent findings. Yeah. And I think another key factor there is that a lot of these studies where you're comparing arranged marriages to a couple initiated marriages, they were conducted in different countries, different cultures, where the entire practice of arranged marriage might be different. And so an arranged marriage in, say, Japan might look very different from an arranged marriage in India, might look very different from an arranged marriage in another country. So you can't just compare any arranged marriage in any culture and, and assume that the effects are going to be interchangeable. So that's part of it. And then also certainly that variability in terms of just how it's practiced within a given culture is certainly going to be important as well. Now, theoretically speaking, what are some of the arguments that researchers have advanced for why they think couple-initiated marriages should be happier? And what are some of the arguments for why they think arranged marriages should be happier? Yeah, so I think the, the arguments for why couple-initiated marriages are thought to be happier are the ones that we tend to think of the average person in the U.S. might say, which is, well, I'm in the best position to decide who's going to be the best partner for me, who knows me better than me and what, what I desire. I'm, I know what I desire better than anyone. And I think what people who say that couple-initiated marriages really may not be the most satisfying or the best marital quality will cite the high rate of divorce. In our culture, in cultures that have couple-initiated marriages, the declining marital quality over time, so people tend to be less happy in their marriages over time, leading to divorce sometimes. And also, they would say that really the best people to choose who you should marry, if you could think of marriage as a construct of blending two families, would be the senior members of those families, right? Also, the senior members of the families have more wisdom than, you know, a teenager or someone in their young 20s. Also, they won't be as emotional. And so they're able to take into account more practical factors such as financials, things like this, things that might be more important in terms of long-term success of a marriage than that like beating of your heart that you experience when you have a crush on someone. You know, as you were talking about this, I was thinking about the role that social support and support from your family really plays when it comes to relationship quality and satisfaction and happiness. And when I was a graduate student first starting out studying the psychology of sex and relationships, one of my big study areas was people who are in marginalized relationships, such as interracial couples, age discrepant couples, same-sex couples. And what you find is that the more disapproval people feel from their social networks, from their family, friends, society, the worse their relationship outcomes tend to be. And I also conducted some longitudinal work finding that they're more likely to break up when they don't have that social support. And when you're in a couple initiated relationship, that's not a guarantee that you're going to have social support or family support because you might choose a partner that your parents don't like. And that can put strain and stress on the relationship. And so I just think that's important to recognize. You know, people often talk about couple initiated marriages and, you know, you know yourself the best and you're going to find the right partner for you and that's going to guarantee satisfaction or happiness. And that's not not necessarily the case because there's that crucial role of social support. Yeah, I think that's really important. I want to mention also my collaborators, Farhana Froze, Sumaya Saif, and Faika Mosin. And I asked them, you know, what are some things that you really want me to get across today in this interview? And I think one of the important things that they mentioned was it's not just social support, it can also be removing financial support. 
Um, the parents may not, that is an important aspect of the culture is that there is financial and social support from parents. And so without that, that can actually undermine, or we think it may undermine not having the support from their parents. But an important factor also is it varies by the, the socioeconomic status of the couple. So if the couple is well-educated and can be financially independent, then it may have less of an impact that their parents may withdraw, withdraw support. And so that's also a very important factor to consider. Right. And I really appreciate you bringing that up. And, you know, just one other thing to sort of close that loop on social support, because I don't think I mentioned it, was that if you're in an arranged marriage and your parents have given their seal of approval to your partner, I think that's likely going to increase the odds of social support, familial support for the relationship. But then there's also that financial support piece that you're talking about as well. And so I think that provides a theoretical reason to suggest that these relationships should actually be pretty strong. So there have been lots of things that have been said, (laughs) lots of discrepant research findings, but you approached your work on arranged marriages differently from past studies. So how was your approach different and how did you go about recruiting participants who were in arranged marriages? We recruited folks who were in arranged marriages as well as couple-initiated marriages, posting on Facebook, going, you know, and giving out flyers at cultural events, putting posters around town. The the recruitment happened in Chittagong, Bangladesh, which is a conservative Muslim city there of about 5 million people. And we asked folks to say who initiated the couple, like who, who, who chose your partner for you? And they could say themselves, in which case it would be couple initiated. If it was anyone else besides themselves, then we assumed it would be an arranged marriage. For most folks, it was their parents, but not all. There was a few who was arranged by other people. So it sounds like there's a lot of variability, even within a culture where arranged marriage is practiced, where some people will initiate their relationship on their own. Some people will have their parents involved. Some people will have a third party, a matchmaker. And and so this can take a lot of different forms. So your sample was roughly evenly split between women who were in couple-initiated marriages and women who were in some type of arranged marriage. So at the overall level, did you see any differences in things like passion, intimacy, commitment, and marital quality across relationship type? Yeah, so when we conceptualize it as a dichotomous variable, couple-initiated versus arranged, there were no actual differences in any of the outcomes that we studied, which was positive marital quality, negative marital quality, passion, intimacy, and commitment. And so you looked at a lot of different things, a lot of different outcomes in this particular study. And just at that overall level, you weren't seeing any differences, which is kind of surprising in light of the previous research that has found that there are differences. But again, those differences weren't consistent. But when you took influence into account, you know, this degree of control that you might have over your choice of partner, you saw a very different pattern of results. So how did things change when you looked at that role of influence over partner choice? Yeah. So we we asked a very simple question, which is on a scale of one to 10, how much influence did you have over the choice of your partner? Interestingly, those who were in the group that we conceptualize as arranged marriage, it was about 5.4 out of 10. So more than halfway, they thought they had influence. Those who were in couple initiated marriages, it was a little higher than eight out of 10. So both folks, you know, felt that they had agency, um, although the couple initiated marriages obviously felt that they had more. And when we looked at it in this kind of continuous manner, rather than a dichotomous manner, we found that those who reported a greater influence over their partner choice had better marital quality, as well as higher love, intimacy, and commitment, passion, intimacy, and commitment. 
So it seems that one of the key things your research tells us is that in making these sort of general comparisons between couple-initiated and arranged marriages, that doesn't necessarily tell us a lot. And the key thing really seems to be more feeling as though you have some degree of agency or influence when it comes to who you're going to marry. I've seen some research recently, specifically out of India, that would suggest that the dynamics are changing and that women are having somewhat more degree of influence over their choice of partner today. But I haven't really seen much coming out of other cultures because this is one of those under-researched topics. So that's something that I would be curious to know more about in the future is in terms of how are these things shifting and changing over time. I think another important part of your research is just sort of looking at the overall levels of passion, intimacy, commitment, marital quality across relationship type. Because what you see is that, yes, they're not different, but they're both actually pretty high for for both groups, which I think dispels certain stereotypes or myths about arranged marriages, which is that, you know, if you have an arranged marriage that you're not going to feel that sort of same level of sexual passion or excitement for the relationship or the same degree of intimacy, but it suggests that it doesn't have to differ across relationship type. And so different types, different styles of relationships can work. Certainly that seems to be something that you can take away from this, right? Absolutely. And I I think there's, I mean, there's also going to be differences in terms of even how couple-initiated marriages are practiced across cultures, right? And so that makes sense that there's a lot of similarity between those two types of marriages. And you and your work, you focused specifically on newlyweds, right? Yeah. So these were folks who were either engaged or was in the first three years of marriage. And so, you know, one explanation for that may be that they're in this honeymoon period, right? So for everyone, things are going pretty well. There's the excitement of the new new marriage. Maybe they're, you know, they're, they're setting up house together, although not everyone was. Some people were still were living apart due to education or, or international jobs. They may be, you know, trying to get pregnant. So there's all this excitement in the beginning of a relationship that so it may constitute a honeymoon period, which is why everyone was pretty high and that there were, weren't much differences between the groups. You know, as you're talking about this, one study I'm thinking about on arranged marriages that I saw previously, I know this isn't one of your studies, but for people in arranged marriages, passion and intimacy and things like that grew over time as the couple sort of established their relationship together. And so there was sort of this interesting difference when you looked at couple initiated versus arranged marriages where passion is something that can build over time in an arranged marriage, but passion is declining over time for the couple initiated marriages. So I think this would also be really interesting to look at more in terms of that temporal lens and how do things change over time and then further adding in that role of amount of influence and choice that you have over your partner. I think there's it's just such a ripe area for research where we just don't know a lot because it just hasn't really historically been studied very much. I think it's it's interesting to share. I, I want to preface this by saying I'm not trying to compare spouses to pets, but you know, a lot of times we think, you know, how could I ever love someone who I've just been set up with? It's like, well, you go to a, to the pound, you go to the shelter, and you and you find an animal, and you don't love that animal. You've just met that animal, but you have this strong expectation that you're going to grow to love that animal very deeply, and then you do. And so, having that expectation from the outset of a marriage, I think can do a lot for kind of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy where you do love that person when certain conditions are met, like they're reliable and trustworthy and there for you and that kind of thing. Absolutely. 
Now, I think this conversation is so important for developing a more culturally sensitive understanding of relationships. And as I was mentioning a little bit earlier in the show, I think a lot of people have a tendency to think that whatever is the dominant model of relationships in their culture is the best one, or that it's what everyone should be doing. So what do you want people to know or take away from your research in terms of just how they think about relationships more broadly? Great question. I guess that there's a lot of pathways. So there's lots of different definitions of what a successful relationship is, and there's lots of pathways to get there. I do think that having different expectations of a relationship can either set you up for success or failure. So, you know, my own personal beliefs is when you, when you expect your spouse to be everything for you, when you expect that it's a route for, as you mentioned, self-actualization, that's a lot to live up to. (laughs) And it's really hard to maintain over decades. When you have a belief that a person is going to be your partner, that you're going to work together to create a life together, that you're going to be creating a good life for your children, and that you're going to, you know, be partners in these tasks that society sets out for people to accomplish, then you may be more successful. You may be, have an easier time being satisfied by what you set out to accomplish by your marriage. And, you know, as you're talking all about this, I'm just thinking more broadly about relationship diversity and marriage. And these are things that can look drastically different. There's no one right or correct way to approach them. And this is true when it comes to, say, monogamy and consensual non-monogamy. Not every model works equally well for every individual. And for some people, a couple-initiated arrangement might work out. For other people, an arranged marriage might work out. You know, there's all different kinds of ways to approach relationships. But I think you're so right that your personal beliefs about relationships are really crucial in terms of whether or not that relationship is ultimately going to be happy and, and work out. And that's, I think, where relationship growth beliefs are really key, where if you have this idea that if conflict arises, it can be overcome and you're willing to work on that, then no matter what style of relationship you have, your relationship is more likely to work out. But if you're more of a destiny believer where you think things are either meant to be or they aren't, that tends to make it a bit harder because people don't tend to invest as much in trying to overcome conflict in those situations. And so they might end up resigning themselves to a lifetime of unhappiness because they don't think the problem can be overcome or they'll just end that relationship, start a new one, and then maybe find the same problem arising again and again. So those personal beliefs about relationships are really crucial. I think there's also this interesting other factor of how much freedom you have in society to end relationships and start new ones. And so in cultures where divorce is really stigmatized, there's going to be a subset of the population that are in really bad marriages, that their partner may be abusive or alcoholic or, you know, what have you. Really not a good partner and you are unable to change them and you're stuck in this marriage. But there may be another subset of people for whom when they know that they have to stay in that relationship because the the alternative is really a lot of stigma and a very difficult life, there may be some people for whom sticking it out and knowing that they have to stick it out, they're going to be more invested in trying to work on the relationship. And so those relationships can be more successful over time because of that greater commitment. I really appreciate you bringing that up and pointing out how it can sort of cut both ways when there's that really strong pressure to stay together. And for some people, that might be sort of the nudge that they need to really work on and invest in their relationship. And that's got me thinking about relationship dynamics during the pandemic and how, you know, that was a time where it was actually really hard to get a divorce because 
the courts were closed, right? And so a lot of couples went through a lot of struggles and had to figure out a way to make their relationship work. And so a lot of relationships actually came out stronger in the end. But the flip side of that is that we also know that domestic violence increased and there were a lot of toxic relationships and abusive situations where people couldn't get out of them. So that's just the unfortunate, sad reality that you know, not everyone experiences positive effects in these particular situations and circumstances where maybe they don't feel like they have a choice to leave a given relationship. Now, I know you had some colleagues and collaborators in Bangladesh who helped you with participant recruitment and were actually administering the survey and so forth. Was there anything else that they wanted us to know about arranged marriage or other myths, misconceptions people have about them? You mentioned earlier in the beginning that a lot of folks from cultures that don't have traditionally arranged marriage think that it's forced marriage. Of course, that's not the case. Forced marriage exists. I'm not trying to suggest it doesn't, but arranged marriage and forced marriage are not the same thing. And there is agency. People, as I was mentioning, my my friend who told her parents, I trust you 100%. You're going to pick the best the best partner for me. That is that is a choice and that is an agency. And so I think that's an important thing that should be passed on. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Sharon. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Sure. I do have a website, a lab website. You can find it probably by Googling Sharon Flicker at California State University for Sac- at Sacramento. And you can follow me on Twitter and always you can email me at Flicker, F-L-I-C-K-E-R at csus.edu. And I will be sure to include links in the show notes to everything you just shared. Thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.